Welcome, everyone, to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest tonight is true crime journalist and author and podcast host, Kevin Deutsch. Stay with me. I'll be right back. So tonight, my guest is my colleague, Kevin Deutsch, who um, is also an award-winning criminal justice reporter and author of two books. One is called The Triangle, A Year on the Ground with New York's Bloods and Crips, and Pill City, How Two Honorable Students Foiled the Feds and Built a Drug Empire. Currently, he's a staff reporter for the journalism nonprofit Bronx Justice News, but he previously worked on staff at the New York Daily News, the Miami Herald, Newsday, Palm Beach Post, the Riverdale Press. He, his work has also appeared in numerous other publications like Newsweek, um, The Village Voice, <clears throat> excuse me, Columbia Journalism Review, The Forward, The Independent, HuffPo, Orlando Sentinel, and New York Post. He's received multiple awards for his writing about crime and national news events, including an Associated Press Award for journal, um, Justice Beat reporting. He has numerous appearances talking about crime and uh, crime reporting on CNN, MSNBC, and C-SPAN's book TV. Um, He's been interviewed about his local journalism by publications such as The New Yorker. He is a graduate of Florida International University and has taught journalism at Queen's College and Hofstra University. Um, he is the host of A Dark Turn, our only true crime podcast in the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Kevin Deutsch, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Pam. It's great to be here. Thanks. I am always happy to talk to you because you always have something interesting going on in your life. When you um, when you are doing your podcast. You are very thoughtful about selections of which books and stories you wish to tell. What attracts you most about the books you select for your podcast? To go, uh, I like to, to read and talk to authors who have written books that deal with uh, essential matters of justice. Uh, and so what, I'm not looking for salacious books. I'm not looking for books that glamorize violence or crime. I'm looking for books about people who are haunted by injustice, Uh, not just the characters, but but the author, too. Uh, Oftentimes, I'll try to choose books uh, by authors uh, like uh, James Renner or Jerry Mitchell, uh, who who wrote a wonderful book about uh, civil civil rights, cold case murders in the South that he helped solve. Uh, uh, true crime writers and journalists uh, uh, are, are appealing to me when they they are so consumed by their, that, by their subject matter that they have to write that book. They have to write about these characters. And, and they're driven through uh, uh, a sense of wanting to write an injustice often. Um, and, and so I think those are the stories that, that I try to chronicle because I think those are the stories that, uh, that, are, uh, that, that create uh, healing narratives for people and help and help people understand that there are uh, writers out there and people out there struggling for justice uh, uh, of all kinds. And I think that that's useful to readers who might be going through things in their own lives and need, need, uh, need to see their struggles reflected um, in nonfiction. That's very true. Um, You studied at FIU. Did you go to North or South campus? I went to the South campus and I, uh, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was I was interning at the Miami Herald at the time. So I got my start in the Broward edition of the Miami Herald, working the night the night police beat. And during days, I would go to FIU, and uh, and so I would I would go out there, and I just remember thinking it was such a beautiful place to to go to school. And now, of course, with all that's happened in the world with COVID nineteen, it's uh, it's the, the college experience is now, now instead of going out there on those palm trees, you're taking your classes in your bedroom on, you know, on your laptop. Right. Um, so it's, yeah. it's just, just been remarkable. The transformation we've seen in just the last couple of months here. Did your internship with the Miami Herald on the crime beat at night, which had to be 
an amazing experience. Did that solidify your interest in true crime and crime journalism? It, it really did. Uh, when I when I went in, when I first showed up in the newsroom, I was twenty. I was on the on the almost twenty one. I couldn't even drink, but I was going out and covering homicides, fires, fatal car accidents. Uh, when you're uh, when you're the rookie intern police reporter, they throw you on all the breaking news, and it's pretty ugly out there. Um, and so it's high stress, uh, high de- uh, late deadlines, uh, a lot of blood, uh, a lot of a lot of trauma. Uh, things that you're walking into um, at that time in Broward and, and Miami-Dade. Uh, and so uh, for me, that really, it, it sort of seared in my consciousness the idea that that that, that the, these acts of violence and things that we read about the, on, the, on the news are, are fairly prevalent. Um, and especially when you're a reporter, it seems like it's, that's the entire world is, is these, these violent acts and these, these breaking, these acts of breaking news. So, when I would cover those, it made me see the large, the larger scope of, of true crime, and that I was only a little piece of it. I was at this fire, or this homicide, or this stabbing. I was one little piece of a huge puzzle, and, and it made me think about how crime, uh, in many ways, can tell the story of an entire society. When you look at the crime that, that is committed in that society, uh, it's reflective of of the society's desires and and, and traumas. Uh, and so that that really got my Got my got me thinking about true crime when I was when I was covering uh, uh, those first early months at the Herald and and I never really stopped uh, covering it after that. The interesting thing to me about that when you're in a, a large metropolitan area like Miami Dade and Broward County is that. There was so much crime just because, you know, Miami-Dade County alone has, what, two and a half million people. Broward's not too far behind it. Um, You can't, no matter how many reporters there are, you can certainly not carry and cover every single violent crime. It just is impossible. Uh, No matter how horrendous the crime, uh, generally the you you just don't have enough people, nor are there column inches in any newspaper that can cover it. Do you feel like victims of crime or the remaining family members get shortchanged because their story isn't told, and not because you don't want to tell it, but because of resources? Absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, the, the 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 newspaper is at its best, an American newspaper at its best, and and. You know, I, I think newspapers are. I'll be honest; they're dying. I think the future of news yes. is digital. I think news will, and and within five years, print newspapers will be a completely niche luxury product, like the New York Times, Washington Post, and right. everyone else will get their news digitally. It'll be stratif- stratified and tiered by income, just like everything else, uh, and that's really sad. But but going just go, going back to your question. Um, I think that newspapers at their best are supposed to be – their local section should be a, a, a snapshot of a community that day. So they're not trying to cover everything, but they're trying to cover everything that they think tells the story of their city that day. And that's usually violent crime. I mean, at least a couple stories are going to be crime. If you're in a smaller community, it'll be car – it might be auto theft or, uh, or shoplifting or arson. But – the amount of the, the amount of things that that are newsworthy in a city and a coverage area on any given day are are mind-boggling. I mean, if you're working at a major, if you're working at the Miami Herald, say, or one of the New York dailies, or a paper in L.A. or San Francisco or Oakland or South Florida or Tampa or you know Clearwater, any mid-major mm-hmm. city, um, there's there's so much going on. The newspaper only finds out about a fraction of it, and. and and that's because most of what the, the newspapers get, uh, find out about, is what the government tells them about. They'll get, they check with the police. The police say, yeah, we got a shooting out on, on 78th Street. Uh, the, right. They call the fire department. Yeah, we got a fire out downtown. It's, uh, it's two, three people trapped, right? But if the, if the government doesn't tell the newspaper something, the newspaper, nine times out of ten, does not know it happened. So that's, that, that's put us in, a, I think, a compromising position uh, as a profession. And it, it's brought us to the moment that we're in now where uh, where if you don't uh, necessarily trust a police narrative or a government narrative, which we've been taught to be skeptical of, uh, then that's a problem because you're that's where all the news comes from. Uh, right. Newspapers get get the news, but then they sort of 
and and they research it, but all the seed, the, the confirmation comes from our government. And so um, I think that's, that's a, that's, that's a problem because if you have several hundred incidents going on in your city a day, uh, the government's going to decide which one they want. And by government, I mean the police, the police are going right. to tell you which one they want you to know about, which one they don't, which means you might not find out about the domestic violence beating involving the cop buddy who beat his wife, his wife half to death. They're not going to tell you about that one. They'll tell you right. about the black guy who got arrested for the shooting downtown with crack in his pocket. Right. Um, that's, that's the difference. And you can never go back and then say, okay, now let me go back and tell your story because the following day brings all new stories. So unless it's um, a story that's making national statewide or national headlines, really there's little follow-up. So if you're a beat reporter, you really, if you've not, reported on a crime that happened yesterday you certainly can't report on what happened on that crime from yesterday today isn't that true that's it that that's yeah i mean especially if you're in a high volume news area where there's a lot going on i mean i i I work in the bronx so uh so i'm covering generally sort of what we call enterprise which is more like watchdog investigative takeout what we call takeouts off the news putting it in context but when we do, when I do, when I have covered breaking news, and when we cover it at Bronx Justice News, there's, you know, there's so much of it. And so today, if you missed the story yesterday, if it didn't make yesterday's paper, it's not getting in tomorrow either. That's it. You know, right. It's, it's gone. Steam, right. Rea- yeah. Reality is a steamroller, and and the news is constantly trying to stay ahead of that steamroller, and it's actually it's just a model that's not really working anymore. Not uh, from both from both from both a profit perspective and also from the public perspective who, uh, you know, I think experience they, they a lot of people want their stories told and they've been they felt wronged or slighted in some way because it wasn't or it was told incorrectly. And of course, you, right. always get, you always get that rare group of people who had their stories portrayed and are happy about it. <laughs> but but uh, right. Right. No, I understand. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough business, and uh, and yes, it's. I think it's uh, not necessarily fair to victims, and it's not, uh, and also not to reporters who, who work their asses off and generally die pretty young and have substance abuse problems. <laughs> right. <laughs> not to depress or discourage any of you aspiring journalists out there. No, no, and that's but that's absolutely true, and I, I want to talk about, you know, what happens just like with myself as a victim advocate going to so many violent crime scenes or you as a crime journalist or police who are in a homicide unit or a domestic violence unit or a sexual assault unit who constantly are seeing the worst that human beings have done to each other. It has to lead to some type of emotional or mental health crisis at some point. So, You've talked before about having PTSD from from this hardcore reporting and seeing the depravity that is out there. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, Kevin. Well, I, I think uh, the research, the limited research that exists on PTSD among journalists, uh, shows that there's there's substantially higher uh, uh, diagnoses among news reporters and journals, especially conflict reporters who cover war or domestically cover law enforcement, uh, murder, violent crime, policing. Um, so, so it is more prevalent among journalists, especially journalists who cover trauma. So, and that right. makes sense because trauma, trauma is like a pathogen almost. Like if you think of it as a pathogen like COVID-19, uh, if you get near trauma, it affects you. And then you you get that trauma from the, the person who had it before, and then you oftentimes will pass that trauma on to someone else, um, or that person will witness your own trauma and then have their own sort of trauma to deal with as a result of what, and this is how trauma is passed down in families, it's how uh, suicide affects families, it's how violent crime and abuse affects families, but, but for me personally, you know, I never served in any war, um, I, you know, I never, I've never been shot at. Um, I, I've, I've never been the victim of a violent crime. I, uh, you know, I had, I've had, uh, I had, I've been threatened, I've had a gun waved at me. Uh, I've had people tell me they were going to kill me if I wrote their story. Uh, but that's not where my issues came from. My issues came from really just 
I think, 16 years of exposure covering hundreds of homicides. And uh, right. even if you're not – and so that was mostly from interviewing people who had trauma, I think, interviewing mothers, brothers, sons, sisters who were right. literally just in agony. I'll tell the you what. The victims and then the of the crime. Sure. The victims of the – right. And then you feel – if you're a good journalist and you empathize, you, you feel what they feel and you are horrified because you, you right. are connecting with their trauma and you're, you feel like you just lost somebody. And then you have to go back to the office and write about it. And you're sort of channeling someone else's. The survivor's uh, um, family. Yeah. Yeah. You're channeling it. And, and when it's almost like you're, it's almost like a seance. It's, it's, a, it's a journalistic seance if you're doing it right. And that right. journalistic seance, seance repeated hundreds or thousands of times is going to break you. So, yeah. um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in, I was in California. I'm ghostwriting a book for a, um, a, a, a public figure out there. And I uh, was working and I'm writing and I was doing some research and I was, uh, uh, and I was, I, I saw uh, uh, two young men who had been shot by police and in the weeks after George Floyd and just, uh, just, hor- just horrible what, what, ha- what, what policemen's bullets, uh, uh, did to these, these poor yeah. young men. Uh, they were, you know, and, and so, uh, it was hard for me to, to see, um, uh, the way that, that even though we're all standing up as a society, I think a lot of us in America are just tired of systemic inequality and racism and, tired of seeing black and brown people be treated as lesser than their white uh, um, neighbors. So, so for me, seeing, the, you know, we talk about that, but then when you see bodies and you see kids being gunned down like that and they really shouldn't yeah. be dead just for, for stealing a car or for carrying a hammer, and, and, you know, that's, it's, so this is, um, it's horrible. And so that for me, when I start connecting the historical forces with what I'm looking at, it, it it makes it hard to do the work, but then you have to do the work because somebody has to do it because has to tell the you know, story. Sure, it, you, you have you have to do it. So it's almost like all right, you're going to have a certain amount of trauma if you keep doing this forever. So um, uh, and, and so it's a trade off. How do you take care of yourself? And for me, you know, I, I mentioned this in a story I wrote in the Independent, uh, Great Britain. I wrote about psychedelic therapy that I that I tried and I had really great success with. This was a I guess a couple of years ago, and um, really, how I, uh, my PTSD manifested itself as nightmares mostly, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so uh, and some sort of just experiential flashback, sensory flashbacks. Um, right. So for me, for me, that the psilocybin, the active ingredient in the mushroom, um, going on guided uh, trips um, with uh, a sort of a spiritual therapist. Uh, helped me really to uh, focus my uh, on what I was feeling, why I was feeling it, and just to make peace with that. That's something that the mushrooms can really help with, and that's part of the reason that uh, increasingly we're seeing more and more testing and legitimization and respect right. for research in that field because this city and it can change your you can change your mind literally um, and physically with with uh, you know if, if you are if you if you use psilocybin correctly. If you get the help, if you work with experts and you're committed to change, that can be the, the thing that allows you to remold your brain so that that trauma that was really painful to you now just is sort of incorporated into your life and you accept it and, and it's right. okay. And, and, sort of, and that, yeah. And that, that actualization can occur, I think, uh, uh, with the help of psilocybin in a way that it's, it's much harder to do, I think, without it for people who have trauma. It is becoming um, a more popular or more heavily researched and and trials uh, in psychotherapy, along with, uh, you know, a limited use of LSD as well. Um, I'm a victim of a violent crime. I was worried about having PTSD and worried that, you know, I was exhibiting unknowingly to me signs of, of depression or suicidal ideation. So I went to a shrink and, and it worked. He really, really helped me. He was great. The first one was not, the second one was great. Also my training as a victim advocate, you learn how to not take on the trauma and the horror, the horribleness 
of the victim that you're serving. Um, you have to learn how to compartmentalize all that. Otherwise, you just want to go home and throw up and think, you know, how could someone be so brutalized? It's horrible. And, so, and we never get that training. You, you, that training is so important. It is. It's really critical to your mental health. Um, it is, uh, you know, advocates that I know have stayed in the business for their lifetime. They, and I continue to do advocacy work. But um, they stay at it because they are so good at knowing how to deal with someone who is hysterical, who is, because I specialize in domestic violence and sexual assault, but particularly domestic violence, who's someone who is, you know, cannot leave their abuser, even though they've, you know, tried to kill them. And they say, but I love them. And, you know, and so you learn how to deal with that and to try to do it on a rational level. The other interesting thing is, and I bet you find this too, you learned how to listen to people and what they're trying to tell you versus what they actually said. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, especially when you're dealing with trauma survivors and victims and, but you know, it's, it's, you, you, you sort of learn to read between the lines and you, yes. your communication, your communication skills, I think change and, the more the the deep the more contact you have with the human species, the more you see that we're all the same, and that you start to pick up on things that people are telling you but not telling you, and you start right. start tapping into that that emotional IQ, and I think that's really important. That's for for if you're working with with survivors, you're working with trauma victims or journalistic right. subjects who witness violence. There's so much, and, and these are professions that all those professions like that, that you were involved in, and social work, right. and trauma right. uh, therapy, and journalism. These are sort of soft skill professions where it's all about that emotional IQ, and then, like you said, not absorbing too too much of the trauma, but also, but but at the same time, you need to just cook, connect with this person really on a on a right. level that that you're both people and you and you want to help them, um, and that's you know we just. It takes a lot out of you, but that's that's the work it of does. a democracy. Yeah, and that's the and that's the work you choose if you have empathy for others. You know, it seems to me, compounding all that, you have limited, like we talked about print already. Um, you have a limited amount of column inches to sell us to tell a story, and probably will have less so. I mean, yeah, there's there are some benefits to doing online, but more and more, if you pick up a print newspaper you will see it covered in advertising because it's become so expensive to run a printing press, to, to crank out new, paper newspapers. So um, how do you decide how much, you know, what you put in a story if you're limited by column inches? I, I went to, to, you know, I studied journalism. So that you know, you have the five W's and the H that you've got to get into your first paragraph. How do you, how do you tell the magnitude of a crime in such a short period of time and not bang your head on the desk. Well, that's, I, I think we all, I think, I think if we have any, any uh, sense and sympathy for, for the people that are in that story, we, we do bang our heads, right? We all do. We, yeah. we're like, we know this is just, uh, you know, it's like the, the iceberg, you're only seeing the very tip of the iceberg, 99% of the icebergs under the water. And so right. you're, you're, so we're seeing that, that 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 news story is literally the tip of reality, and then everything else, the truth behind that surface reality, is buried. And the, the newspaper will never tell you that story. I mean, even with long form, you know, column inches aside, um, even when you're looking at, at stories, you're going to the long form magazines and digital. Right. Even with un, even with with unlimited space, the the um, the traditions of journalism uh print journalism uh mandate that a story just not be too long otherwise it's going to be a book otherwise just write a book so so right. even when you even in long form journalism you're really restricted and you cannot you cannot fully capture even one life in that story really right over a course of a person's lifetime versus an entire web of narrative which is what these stories right. are so um it's it's hard you 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 pick what you think is the most important 
um, and and obviously the, the the conventions of journalism often often ben, uh, uh, dictate that, as you said, the five W's and, and the who, right. the, the who, right. what, when, where, why, and how, right, and the how, how right. So uh, so we're like, uh, you know, but but obviously that's not reality. Those are just little. Those are just little little uh, those are props of for instrument. you, right. Right. Yeah, right. and so you know, it, it, it's really frustrating. That's ultimately why I started writing the book because I I had been covering this, my first book, The Triangle. I've been I've been covering this gang war between a b- local Bloods and Crips set in the village of Hempstead in, in Nassau County, Long Island, and I've been right covering this story all year about these 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 uh, these crews going at it over drug turf, and I'd gone out there with these uh, these these sort of uh, uh, activist. Uh, uh, prayer warriors almost where they went out there or, you know, clothed in the armor of God. And they talked to these kids and they said, you know, God doesn't want you to do this and we're here to, to help you stop fighting. And, and they had a lot of success. And uh, anyway, I thought it was such an interesting story. And I was getting in whenever I pitched the stories to my editors, they'd be like at Newsday, they'd be like, well, we only have like this much column space because that's a black neighborhood. You know, that's not what they right. said, but that's what they meant. That's what they meant. Right. And, right. uh, and so that, that's what a lot of mainstream news, newspapers mean when they say uh, that's not a story that we're interested in right now. It means that it happened in a black community or a brown community, and it's something that needs to stop, and, and uh, it's something that exists. Um, anyway, uh, the, 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 the column inches are, are frustrating. You take what you can. Ultimately, I think books are the way to tell these stories because otherwise we're just shortchanging everybody who thinks that they're getting their value when they spend a subscription on a newspaper. I think that for anybody to have any sort of news, high news IQ these days, they have to be going to, to, to many, many different outlets. Different. Um, right. I agree with you. Right. But, the, is, but you know it, something yeah. you're, when you're, when you were doing the Bloods and the Crips, you were doing a serialized, a, a series of articles on them. You weren't just doing one article. Is that correct? Um, because I, I can't imagine telling a story of two violent gangs in one, even one news uh, magazine article or one online article. It seemed to me for people to understand the, how gangs work and to understand what drives young kids to be gang members and you know the 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 entitlement the power the control how does one get that in a in a magazine article it, Thus, you can't you you write you wrote the book to try to explain that so I, I want to talk about this because it is called A Year on the Ground with New York's Bloods and Crips, the Triangle. What, what is the Triangle specifically? So the Triangle was, uh, is a geographical area called the Linden Triangle uh, in Hempstead. And it was sort of a – I wrote this book about, um, about a gang war that happened in 2012. The book came out a couple years later. Um, so this was uh, – uh, this is quite a while ago now, but the area is a small area called the Linden Triangle, and it was coveted by both the Bloods and the Crips uh, sets that that existed in that area. The reason that they wanted the triangle because is because if you stand at the top of the triangle, you can see your arrivals coming down the long ah. road. To, so there was no way anyone could come into the triangle without you seeing them. So so nobody was going to get the drop on them. So they would see the police coming. They would see their enemies coming. They would see customers coming. Therefore, this represented the ideal piece of drug real estate uh, in that area. So, uh, yeah, I, I wrote uh, I wrote a, a long newspaper story about it, and um, I think we may have done some shorter pieces. But to your point, it, it, you know, you can't <laughs> you can't tell the story the story of drug dealing in Hempstead, Long Island, is a story that goes back to the to, that goes back 400 years. It goes back to right. how, how did these young men of color get on that corner so desperate that they were willing to die to make a couple dollars selling drugs? That's a story right. that's been going. That's a story that goes back 400 years. So the, you know, and you're t- you'd be telling the story of the entire black people and their impression in America to reach that child on that corner in that moment. So you couldn't do that in a suburban newspaper like Newsday or any other newspaper for that matter. You definitely right. can't tell that story accurately and fully if most of the editors in American newsrooms, and I think uh, 76% of American news leadership is white. 
So, uh, and among those, that, most of them are white males. So you can't tell stories like that if it's three or four, like it's a three or four uh, white news editors making six figures sit, sitting in a newsroom deciding what stories to tell, which is how the news works. Uh, right. So, you know, so in every city, it's 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 mo- it's very uh, uh, it, uh, journalism is, is sort of a very rigid structure, and it's a rigid structure controlled. Uh, mostly by white journalists, specifically white males. And, and I think that the change that, we're, that people are talking about it with policing society, we have to address the way journalism works too, because those two things are, uh, they work hand in hand and they're part of the same problem. Now, Kevin, you went on to write another book called Pell City, how, the, how two honor roll students foiled the feds and built a drug empire. Before we talk about that book, I want to call attention for listeners to a piece that you posted on your Facebook page that during the the demonstrations, and I don't want to call them riots because I think that most were legitimate demonstrators after the George Floyd homicide, um, that pharmacies were looted everywhere around this country. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yeah. So, well, so my, well, I'll start with with what happened after George Floyd. Um, there were there were uh, pharmacies looted in in, in uh, I don't I don't have the data right in front of me. Do you have Do you happen to have the number right there? Um, I don't have I think it. it no. does. It well, it was dozens. It was. I'm thinking because in my book, I'll I'll, I'll go back to 2015. In 2015, I covered the the Freddie Gray uprising. Right. And right. it's interesting because we're talking about riots. The language has changed so much, even from 2015. Um, the, the nomenclature of, of calling it an uprising now, I think, is more uh, accurate. And I think it, it's more fairly represents how people in that community view it. Um, but, of course, riot is still, uh, is, is still a term that's in use because it's, it's destruction to pro- if you're destruction, destroying property. So it, even though nomenclature is changing now, and it's so interesting, it, it shows the way that we're evolving as a society and hopefully getting to a better place and a more just place and a less racist place. But, but uh, so I wrote about uh, the Freddie Gray uprising in 2015. Uh, Freddie was a young man who'd been killed by Baltimore police in what they called right. a, a rough ride, where you throw, you throw a kid in back of the police van, you don't seatbelt them, you don't lock, uh, buckle them in. And then you drive 90 miles over potholes, and what happens is the kid ends up dead. And that's what happened to Freddie. He died. It triggered an uprising. Uh, 31 pharmacies uh, were looted uh, of opioids in Baltimore. At the time, it was the largest heist of of pharmaceutical drugs in American history until last month uh, when dozens of pharmacies across the country were looted um, and, and many, many um, uh, more drugs on magnitudes higher than what was stolen in Baltimore, uh, taken from pharmacies across the United States. So basically you saw what happened in Baltimore. That was the subject of my book and how those drugs transformed the local drug market and then had a ripple effect going out um, um, to, to other parts of the country, causing violence and, and addiction as part of this plague of, of, of the opioid epidemic, epidemic that we're still suffering, and we're suffering even uh, more seriously in 2015. Um, so, so, so this, this, what we saw after George Floyd's killing and the uprisings in many American cities, um, within those communities, we had very small pockets of people who were stealing drugs um, and using the uprisings as cover for for crime. And so it was wrong, but it was it, it was it was widespread. And so we have not begun to see, I don't think, the ramifications uh, of of those. Uh, scores of pharmacy lootings nationwide last month. Uh, I think the DEA is, is trying to track those drugs, and there, there, there's so many drugs that they're probably affecting. Uh, they're probably affecting the local conditions and drug markets throughout the U.S. and and possibly uh, uh, playing a role, I'd imagine, in the uh, increases in violent crime we're seeing in a number of American cities as well. Boy, you're not kidding. Let's talk about Pill City. Um, the book is fascinating. It is, it is so unexpected. The, sto- it's, the story is hard to read. You know, it's these. This is the devastating effects of drug addiction in this country and other countries cannot be overstated. It it cost us 
emotionally, mentally, physically, economically. The it, it creates more racism. It creates overwhelmed facilities. We don't have enough places to, to help people with addiction. We seem to think throwing them in jail is the answer. Um, now, I'm all for anybody who's stealing drugs and selling them, you know, from looting mar- markets or pharmacies. I, I think that they deserve it because I don't know, and you'll know better than I am, if the dealers themselves, the upper echelon, are addicts themselves or are they just creating their their minions into into addicts i don't know so tell me a little bit about pill city and about these two honor roll students who created an a drug empire it's a fascinating book it's a it's a it's a book that uh i've been it's been with me since the day since the day i started reporting on it i i went out to it's a story that's been with me from that day, and it's never left me. I'm still working on it. We're we're it's still uh, we're still working on um, spinoff projects from Pill City and uh, and people involved uh, in that in that story and other and 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 it's just it's a story that dominated my life. But but just to to sum it up for readers who, who haven't read it, it's uh, it's a book about two young men who teamed up with the Black Gorilla family, which at the time was the largest drug organization in Baltimore uh, and the largest street gang in Baltimore and still is. Um, and so these, these young men who, who had tremendous technology know-how, um, they were brilliant when it came to software programming, computers. They, they knew how to hack. They knew how to software design. They understood um, business and they understood the Internet and they understood the power of social media and they understood the power of the iPhone and, and its power to transform drug dealing. And so they bought sort of a high-tech uh, approach to, to, to the Black Gorilla family's uh, street-hardened, violent approach. And so this intellectual techno- technological approach merged with the, the street-hardened, street-gang drug dealer uh, approach, and they created an organization called Pill City. And I tracked Pill City's activities after, they, after their members looted uh, those pharmacies in Baltimore. They were, they were involved in, in all of them. Um, in one way or another, either uh, having their members loot the, uh, involved at the actual looting or procuring the drugs afterwards from people who looted them. Um, but these, I tracked these drugs and the people who sold them and sort of told the story of Baltimore after Freddie Gray, the Freddie Gray uprising through the story of these gangs and, and, the, and sort of the devastation they, call, they caused uh, for for many families, that was the year that Baltimore set broke the record for for homicides and was the most violent city in America. Um, so that story, uh, I think, was uh, devastating in many ways. Um, uh, it also anticipated the current cultural moment in which uh, largely black black communities are seeing uh, residents gunned down by police uh, uh, lawlessly. And they're seeing the system not treated as murder. They're seeing the, the system instead cover it up, and they're they're rising up. And so I think uh, what we saw in 2015 is, is we it was uh, was sort of a what we saw it in 2015 in Baltimore with Freddie Gray. We saw it with Michael Brown and Ferguson. Saw it right. in New York with Eric Gardner, and sort of the country just never never got to that next stage in, in grieving these losses and in demanding uh, rights full equal rights and i think that that deferred moment is, is here now and, and i think as a country we're reckoning with 400 years of, of oppression and, and uh at a time when there's great challenges and so I, I don't think there's ever been a time time like this yeah i agree with you i want to kind of shift a little bit because you have also traveled extensively uh to try to track down leads on deaths that are troublesome to you. But I want to start off with something from both of our hometowns, the Boca Mall murders. Will you please tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, the Boca Mall murders is a case I've been investigating since, uh, since 2007 uh, and 2008 when they happened in, uh, in, at the Town Center Mall and around the Town Center Mall in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, multiple victims, uh, including a mother and her young daughter who were zip-tied, bound, 
and uh, blindfolded and, and executed in their uh, SUV parked just outside the mall in Boca, the very nice mall, posh mall, town center right. of Boca Raton. Uh, and uh, uh, in that, that same year, earlier that year, there had been a murder of another brunette woman at that same mall driving the same up, uh, kind of upscale SUV in the same parking lot outside the Sears. Uh, still later, there was a, another woman who was uh, abducted, uh, blindfolded, with, shot with uh, blacked out swimming goggles, which were also used in the double murder. She and her uh, young son were abducted and and. Uh, and thought they were going to be killed by uh, by a, uh, an this abductor who had last let them go. Um, she was the only surviving victim of, of these cases with her young son. And then there was another um, uh, similar robbery. So we have all these cases that occurred, and they've been cold, multiple murders and abductions. They've never been solved, and uh, I've been investigating it for you know it's, uh, uh, over a decade now. And uh, uh, I've gone to sort of battle with the police over, over court records that they said that's over their records, which, by the way, the police have never made public any of their records in these cases other than the ones they made public back at the time to us. Um, they claim that because the case is still under investigation, anything that they release 11 years later could compromise it. So um, uh, I would just take this opportunity to challenge the Boca Raton police to announce anything that they're doing actively to pursue this case, um, because in court, uh, it would be their defense that that's an active case. Um, so if it's active, uh, tell, us, tell us more about it. Tell us what you're doing. Um, but it's, the, the, the truth of the matter is they're not trying very hard in that case. They're out of leads. And, uh, and so I'm writing a book about the case, and I'm trying to prod and agitate and get people to talk. And I'm trying to get ex-cops to talk. I'm trying to get detectives to work at Boca Raton Police now to talk. I'm trying to get citizens to talk. If you know anything about this case, uh, find me. Um, but it's unsolved. Well, what, you want to solve excuse it, me. Let me it, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it behoove them to to make some public statements and call for citizens and and people who frequented that mall to come forward even anonymously if they have any or any suspicions or anything. I mean, I know it's like a crapshoot. You know, you're you're kind of putting the net in the ocean and hoping you scoop something good up, but the fact of the matter is if it's an, a cold case, what do they have to lose? Exactly. And they put out a very limited amount of evidence and information about the case. Originally, a couple of years later, they, on an anniversary, they briefly, they put out one additional detail that they should have put out initially because it was that, uh, the, the, they released a photo of the swimming black dot swimming goggles the killer used. And if they had actually released that in the early days of the investigation and someone might've recognized them, I was able to trace, uh, the, the, the model of those, uh, goggles and, and they were they were being sold in sort of uh, um, a gothic clothing stores, and as well as in places like Venice Beach. They were sort of like biker gear. Uh, their biker motorcycle glasses, uh, uh, goggles. But but so you know that's the kind of thing if they had released it early. But now, um, not only are they not releasing any information, they're no longer having any press conferences on the anniversaries. They no longer have the families there for press conferences on the anniversaries of these unsolved murders. They, and as I said, they will, they will not release any public records about uh, their leads, about DNA testing. They won't say if they, they have DNA in this case. They won't sure. say if they tested it. They won't say if they've done ancestral DNA testing. Uh, it's a locked box. And one of the problems that people have with police in America right now is that they're not transparent, even though we pay their salaries. And, um, now, and it's, you, yeah. you've also gone on other trips. You were just in Budapest last year looking at a case that was concerning to you. Would you tell us a little bit about that? We're short on time, so I want to kind of encapsulate some of this, if you don't mind. Yes, of course. Uh, there's, there's so much ground to cover, and I appreciate you you taking me through all this, Pam. Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be on. No, no. So just to wrap, yeah, it's it, it's the um, um, I went to Budapest to investigate the death of a young man um, who was visiting. Um, he was married, and he was he was getting married, and he was uh, sorry, sorry, no, he was married, and he was visiting Budapest 
with his fr- best friend who was who was having a stag party, a uh, bachelor party. And Budapest is a popular place to go on stag parties uh, for people in Brit- uh, young men in Britain because it's cheap and there's lots of there are lots of strip clubs, sex clubs. So they went there, and uh, this young man Paul ended up dead. He ended up tumbling down a uh, a large a flight of stairs down to uh, into the, a building lobby, and um, I think he was murdered. And his family thinks he might have been murdered, and the British authorities think he might have been murdered. But the hung, the Budapest police uh, uh, in Hungary, uh, controlled by Viktor Orban, which is, he's a sort of a white fascist, I guess you would call him, maybe a full-on fascist mm-hmm. now. But uh, but he, uh, uh, they they can the investigation. They said, well, it's like he fell. Um, we're not going to pay attention to the 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 the, the video uh, we found of, uh, of of hookers and their pimps leaving the murder scene with his leaving the scene with his money and walking in the building with him. Um, so anyway, the, the Budapest police buried it. Uh, we still think that Paul Bush's uh, uh, death deserves a full homicide investigation, and we're not going to uh, stop until we get one. Well. Um, in your role as as uh, an investigative journalist with Bronx Justice News, you um, you concentrate your areas on public corruption, uh, and you have seen the fruits of your labor come to fruition. Would you tell us a couple stories, please? Yeah, well, you know, I started uh, working with Bronx Justice News, I guess, a little over a year ago, where, where a little, mm-hmm. a tiny local nonprofit startup in Bronx, the Bronx, that focuses on watchdog, watchdog um, uh, social, social justice news. We cover police, prosecutors, corruption, law enforcement, housing, poverty, hunger, anything that's affecting uh, uh, black and brown people and Bronx sites as a whole. Uh, in the uh, as as the poorest borough and the uh, and the the borough with the most uh, most economic blight and in need of the most, uh, that's mm-hmm. where we focus all of our journalistic resources uh, on the people of the Bronx. And uh, so, at Bronx Justice News, we we uh, we ran a series of investigative pieces uh, last year exposing systemic uh, misspending and uh, waste. At the Bronx, in the construction and uh, maintenance of the Bronx Hall of Justice, which uh, is the largest court facility in New York. It's a massive building uh, in the South Bronx, short walk from Yankee Stadium. Uh, and we, we uncovered uh, years and, and many million dollars of waste, neglect, uh, potential corruption, connections to uh, mob figures, uh, scores of lawsuits. Pending from shot, uh, stemming from shoddy work at the structure, including a one, uh, some of which led to one man, uh, one worker's death. Um, uh, massive uh, wow. waste and incompetence that we exposed, and, and we were proud to do it because the other newspapers weren't doing it. Other, the, the New, New York's a great newspaper journalist town, but news, news reporters are so busy you know, with their editors figuring out what the boss wants that they're not out there investigating most of what's going on. Right. And, what was going on was, was corruption at this, this public building. And so we, we uh, through, our, through our work, uh, because of our work, uh, Councilman Richie Torres, who is now, the, I believe, the uh, uh, U.S. representative-elect from the Bronx, he'll be joining the right. in Washington. Richie, uh, Richie Torres, as head of the City Council Investigative Committee, committee made an official referral for an investigation into the Bronx Hall of Justice, uh, citing our story, our investigative series, which triggered a Department of Investigation investigation uh, into the courthouse based uh, on our uh, reporting. So that's an investigation that's ongoing now. And, you know, uh, unfortunately with COVID-19, I think New York's going backwards because all of these, these things that we were, in, in many ways, uh, we were getting places with government reform, reform uh, with things like this. Uh, and so you have now you have, you have all these investigations that the city put on hold to deal with the emergency crisis of COVID-19, but right. I'm confident the city's looking at it. I'm confident the Department of Investigation uh, is going to be able to uh, issue some answers to the people of the Bronx uh, as to why uh, millions of dollars of their tax dollars were wasted and why they were denied access to to part a park that was part of this project that they were promised for over a decade and, and still don't fully have. 
Well, and I, and just full disclosure, I personally am a supporter of Bronx Justice News. Um, and just to let you know, uh, I think it's a fantastic local way that I, if every city had a Bronx Justice News, I think that it would really make a big difference to people who live there. Kevin, you have a website. Please share with us um, your website and what we can expect to find on there. Sure. Um, well, I have, I'm all over social media. I have uh, my, my social media handle is Pill City Book. So at Pill City Book. Um, I have a website, kevindeutsch.us, where you could read more about my books and journalism. Um, and uh, I am on Instagram at Pill City Book uh, and on Facebook, uh, my true crime author page. Of course, all my books are on Amazon. Um, I'm also, uh, uh, I, I just want to encourage everybody to check out Bronx Justice News and support your local uh, nonprofit news organization because the future of news is not profit. It's nonprofit. It's, it's, uh, right. news, news is not going to work, be work, work uh, as a capitalist uh, enterprise much longer. So please, right. everyone out there listening, support, support your uh, local nonprofit news organization. There we go. And go and listen to A Dark Turn. You can find that page on Facebook. It is part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Kevin Deutsch, it has been an honor speaking to you. I I so, so value your input and value the work that you're doing. Um, it's a value-added day for me because you were here. Thank you so much for being with me. It's It's my honor. Thanks so much, Pam. And listeners, the books are The Triangle and Pill City. You can find them on Amazon or uh, other retailers. Um, I encourage you to go and look at Kevin Deutsch's website, kevindeutsch.us. His work is fascinating. And as he said, journalistic integrity is at stake right now. We do not want to lose that. It is critical to a functioning and well-oiled machinery and, and government. Thank you so much for listening to me, everybody. And thank you, mom and dad. I'll see y'all later.